Our guest today started in the sport at a young age, raced some of the biggest races in the world, but his transition out of the sport of cycling and into cycling commentary and presentation has made him a household name throughout the world. Please sit back, get comfortable, and enjoy our chat today with Daniel Lloyd of GCN Eurosport. Welcome, Dan Lloyd, to Bobby and Jens. Thank you very much, guys. It's a pleasure to be on. Man, I know it's been a long season, not only for all the athletes, but I'm sure yourself as well. Um, where are you right now? And do you have time to take a, a break from from your day jobs? Right now, I am in my youngest son's room. Um, reason being, it's the closest to the Wi-Fi connection because the internet's pretty shocking in our place. Um, so that's why I've got a big Porsche flag behind me. It's not that we have that in, in our room. Um, and yeah, I've got a bit of downtime now. I've got a week off this week. Um, it is quite an intense season these days, but I, I like that because it, it follows the the different seasons that we used to have as bike riders, I think. I, I really missed that when GCN first started because you'd get to Lombardy or whatever the final race was and my mind would say... I need some downtime now, uh, but at the time there was there was no downtime. We started to sort of make YouTube videos, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but now that my my job follows the racing season again more, I get to have a bit more time off at this time of year. And are you looking forward to any cyclocross racing, or you go, nah, I stay out of that. I'm not an expert in that. Or you go, hey, I'm going to straight uh, jumping into <laughs> six days in London and commentating and broadcasting cyclocross, or you go, nah, not for me. Now I, I steer clear of that. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know very much about track racing, um, unlike yourself, Jens, of your your big pedigree of the hour record. I heard you talking about uh, what speed you might have gone and what uh, distance you might have done with Dan Bigham CDA and your power output. Um, and now I, I partly steer clear of it because I like the off season and um, just having a bit more downtime and more weekends at home, but mainly because I just don't know enough about it. And there's, there's other cyclocross experts and, and track experts who know a hell of a lot about it and are also you know, very good at articulating both sides of the sport. Cause they, you know, although there's a, that, there's that overlap between lots of different sports and we saw that with gravel and road recently at the world championships, I think there's still specialist disciplines. And if you get specialist commentators in for them, then they're able to, you know, to engage people a bit more than somebody like I would be able to do. You know, but you started in mountain biking. You know, you were a road cyclist for, for over a decade. You were, I think, an assistant DS for a year as well. So you've you've kind of got, you, you definitely have the pedigree. And quite often on air, you were kind of taking the piss out of yourself and, and your career and whatnot. But like, you you were pro for a long time. You finished the Tour de France. You finished two two Tour of Italy's. Um, was there a race that you could look back at now and say, "Gosh, if that one didn't get away, you know, I would I would be retired on a beach somewhere." And you know, <laughs> instead of instead of making all these YouTube videos that you're talking about. I don't think so. No, I mean, there's a, there's a few races where I think, you know, had that gone slightly differently, then I, you know, I might have got a bigger win there. There, there was nothing that got away from me in terms of, I, I felt like I got to the ceiling of my own ability. Um, so I've got no regrets from that point of view. I absolutely loved my time doing the different pro races and, and the lifestyle that it led to. Um, 
but yeah, so, so I've got no regrets from that point of view. I guess if I could specify a couple of races, I'd like to have won the national championships one year. I was, I was second twice, but it was actually the year I came fourth where I felt the best. And, and actually, for one of the only times in my career, I thought, I, I can win this race today. I feel so strong. I've got myself into the right group. And I think because of that, I made the you know, junior mistake of thinking, well, I need to keep this group clear. And so I'm going to go hard and make sure it does stay clear and then finish it off at the end, which I was then unable to do because I didn't have the strength left and other people ended up being stronger. Um, the, other one that, the other one that I would have liked to have done that I didn't actually do in the end was the World Championships in 2011 um, when Mark Cavendish won. And I was sort of on the, on the verge of going. It was between me and Jez Hunt. And I was going really well at the Tour of Britain that year until the final time trial. Um, but I got a call midway through from Rod Ellingworth just saying, uh, unfortunately, you haven't made the cut, Dan, which was, I could see why they'd made the decision. Jez had so much experience, particularly in leading out and working with sprinters, etc. But I always see, you know, that would have been nice to have been a part of a World Championships winning team. And it also coincided with when I didn't get a renewal of my contract. And I sometimes think, well... I wonder if I'd been a if I'd been a part of that GB team, maybe somebody might have come along and offered me another contract. But whenever I look back at it, um, I, I'm quite pleased I stopped when I did. I just think that I'd I felt like I'd made the most of myself, and I knew a lot about training and nutrition, and I'd spent so much of my career really looking into everything. And I think everyone else started to learn all that stuff after. I'd finish, and so that's why you know I look at the speeds now and think, well, I got to where I got to, and and that was good enough for me. But had I been in this era, I probably wouldn't have got there in the first place. But actually, going back to what you were saying, uh, I was thinking about this the other day, Bobby, about why I did take the piss out of myself so much, and I think it was a defence mechanism when I first stopped racing. I think because I had been around guys like you and Yenzi and, and so many amazing bike riders. A lot of the time when I was presenting videos, I was quite, I was more thinking about what my ex-colleagues were thinking about what I was saying, whether they might think, you know, what, why, what gives him the authority to give all this advice to people and do tutorials when actually he wasn't you know, an amazing bike rider. And when I look back at it now, I think, well, that was stupid because, of course, I got to a decent level and I, and I rode grand tours, but I, I probably just lacked confidence, I think, at the time. And I was listening to another podcast the other day, completely unrelated to cycling, talking about people that, that put themselves down as a defence mechanism because it's, it's almost easier if you do it to yourself because then when other people do it, it doesn't hurt as much or whatever. And actually that never came, but it just ended up being one of those things where if we made fun of ourselves, the audience seemed to quite like it and so we carried on doing it. And it's probably only 10 years later that I now think, well, actually I, I should have confidence in in what I'm saying, because I've at least got to a certain level. Um, and I thought about it when I listened to your podcast with Rod Ellingworth, actually. I mean, he got to a decent level. He was never a world beater, neither was Dave Brailsford, but they're still bloody good at what they do. And therefore, I should have confidence in what I do as well. Well, here's your new line of defense. Listen to me. We got 7 billion people on this world. Probably about 4 billion of them have a bike or did own a bike. 4 billion. Let's say 500 million out of them do cycling as a sport, right? Then again, you have probably at any given time about 2,000 registered bike professionals in the world, maybe 3,000. Out of them, only 450 make it into the world tour, 
No, l uh, less, l uh, um, a little more, I believe. And out of them, only 198 back in our days got selected for the tour out of 7 billion people in the world. So, yes, there's no reason for you to be shy <laughs> at all. You are a member of a fairly exclusive club, you know, finishing the Tour de France. Everybody has to be a grown-up and a very respectable bike rider just to get to Paris. So, well done on that and don't ever be shy again, my friend. I will try not to be. No, I was so pleased to get to Paris. I, I, I remember when I was selected for the tour, it was when Heinrich had a, Heinrich Hausler had a knee injury and I got the call from the team. And funnily enough, about a week before, I'd got a call from the team saying, uh, you're going to the Tour of Austria. And I was like, look, I really need a break because I'd done you know, the early season stage races, the classics, the Giro, and then I'd gone on to the Dauphiné. And... And I said, no, I can't do Tour of Austria. And a week later, they said, do you think you could do the Tour de France? I said, yeah, that will be absolutely fine. <laughs> um, but I was, I was rooming with Jez Hunt. It was just before the National Ham Championships. And I said, oh, they want me to go to the Tour de France. I, but I'm so tired. I just don't think I'm going to get through it. He said, well, don't turn it down. Because I turned it down in my second year pro. And I didn't get another opportunity for 13 years, I think it was. So he did his first Tour de France that year as well. So yeah, I'm really pleased that I did it, but I was, I was definitely going to get to the Champs-Élysées, whatever, um, however hard it was going to be to get there. Well, by your own admission, maybe it was a little bit obscure of a career when you were racing, but now you are the face of cycling in so many di on so many different platforms. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how GCN started? Um, Seems like, you know, it's, it's been a, a pretty cool ride and you've been there pretty much from the beginning. So for, for myself and for our listeners, what was that whole project like? How did it get started? Uh, so it started in 2012, which is a year that I had as a, a sort of transitioning between being pro and doing other stuff in life, uh, which was fantastic. Basically, what had happened was I didn't get a contract renewal at Garmin Cervelo. And so I was there thinking, well, I... I've got no idea what I want to do next or what I can do next or how I'm going to earn money next. And so I started to get some work with like Eurosport and with RCS to do the, the commentary on the ground at the, at the Giro and all the RCS races. Uh, and then in the middle of that, a guy that owns the Sigma Sports Shop in London had a pro team at the time. And he said, this is Ian Whittingham. He said, well, why don't you come and race for us, do the Tour of Britain, do a few of the national races, a couple of international ones whilst you're doing the commentary and the other stuff. Which I did, and it was fantastic because it meant I hadn't just stopped dead and lying in the sand and then tried to start something new. I had a year where I could do bits and pieces elsewhere. Um, and during that year, we were sponsored by IG Market. So you'll probably remember we're on the, the back of the Team Sky Shorts in their early years. Uh, and they wanted to activate their sponsorship in cycling. And so they wanted to do previews of Tour de France stages, Giro stages, etc., and they asked me if I'd present it. And the people they asked to produce it was called Shift Active Media, which was our parent company uh, run by Simon Ware, who then met the head of sport at Google through our then chairman, Andrew Croker. And he found out that YouTube wanted to start making original content channels because at the time it was already a huge website, like absolutely massive, millions of uploads every hour to the website. But there weren't really many channels at the time. So when you searched for something, you didn't really know if you're going to get a grainy 10 second video 
or if you were going to get a decent piece of content for five minutes. And you certainly didn't know that you could keep coming back and back and back. And so what YouTube wanted to do is create these channels and help fund them for the first year so that people had something, if they were interested in it, that they could go back to time and time again, knowing that they were going to get quality content. So I think there were about 40 at the start. So there was music, there was a science channel headed up by James May from Top Gear. There was a cooking channel with uh, Jamie Oliver. And then we managed to win the contract to do the cycling channel. But yeah, it was all really um, the brainchild of Simon Ware and, and Andrew Croker. So Simon's the founder of the company and he was the driving force behind it, has been ever since. He's a, he's a remarkable person who just seems to know where things are going to go in media. I don't know how he does it. It's not just through looking at his kids, as I was saying before we started recording. He can just sort of sense when something's going to get left behind and when something new is going to come in. Um, so yeah, it's been an amazing journey really from the start where we didn't really know what we were doing. You know, we had some guidance from YouTube. We've got to keep things short to the point. Something's going to happen in the first 10 seconds. It needs to be less than five minutes for it to work on YouTube. Um, so that journey has also been interesting, the way that YouTube has changed and the way that people's habits of viewing YouTube has changed and the amount of attention they're willing to give a single video. But in <laughs> the weird thing is it's all started to go back to where YouTube was 10 years ago because now you've got YouTube Short, which is trying to copy Instagram Reels, which was trying to copy TikTok, etc., etc., And so we've gone like this full circle thing because I see my kid, he, he just spends all of his time on YouTube Shorts and very little on the traditional uh, landscape YouTube videos. And so we've gone all the way back to this sort of short form scrolling through, not really knowing what you're going to get and your gem comes up. And you think, wow, that was worth the last 10 minutes of scrolling because that is funny. Um, so yeah, it's been a really interesting journey on all parts of the company. But the good thing is I'm still enjoying it to this day. That's actually a good point. Uh, you just said you enjoyed your cycling career. You were happy the way it went. You're happy now. Um, before we go further on, uh, I just want to go back to the start. When and how did you get infected with the cycling virus? At what age and how did that come across? I was 13. And my mate's uncle used to give him MBUK magazine, so Mountain Biking UK. And I was flicking through that and I thought, I want to do mountain biking. So I pestered my dad for months and months and months to get a mountain bike. And I think in his head, he was thinking, this is just going to be two months, then back in the shed, never see it again. But I think I got one that Christmas, about eight months after I said I'd like one. And a few months after that, I found a local race. And I did that and I did really, really badly. I was like 47th out of about 60 starters in the under, I think it was under 16 because they didn't have an under 14 category at the time. And, I, and it, I think like all of us, I found it so hard and I felt so sick coming through the start finish area because they had all of the sort of barbecues and the burgers being cooked and I was like breathing out of my ass. But by the finish of the race, about 10, 15 minutes later, I was like, well, when's the next one? When's the next one? Because I, I'd just already addicted after the first race. And in some ways, it was quite good to do so bad in the first one, because then there's sort of only improvements to go. So you keep getting a little bit better and a little bit better. And that was what my whole career was, really. It was just always trying to find something extra to get a bit better than the previous year, which keeps you motivated, right? Because if you're not stagnating and you're always going forward, you're always trying to push more and, and get there. But yeah, 13 years old was when I obviously took a, I had a bike from the age of, of three, but um, that was when I first started thinking I really like this sport and I want to see how far I can get. 
Wow. So you didn't uh, run into Rod Ellingworth at some school somewhere where he picked you off the um, the playground? You actually did it organically. Well, um, our, par- our paths did cross and he did help me, Rod Ellingworth, because there came a point where I'd been mountain biking for a long time and the money had sort of fallen away from mountain biking slightly. Now, so I was looking at my results thinking, well, the likelihood of me making any kind of career out of cross-country mountain biking is fairly minimal. But there seems to be more spots and jobs in road cycling. So maybe I'd better start thinking more about that. And so when I was about 20 or 21, I, tr- I left the mountain biking behind. I did half a season in the UK and I was trying to find a team to go abroad to. And the team I went to was Uvisi Atois, which is the team that Rod Ellingworth had ridden for. And it was him that spoke to Jacques-André, who ran the team at the time, and said, look, we've got this lad that's um, doing okay on the UK scene. Would you give him a spot for the second half of the year? So yeah, that was my first my first taste of racing abroad, but it came through Rod. And then you had to learn uh, French. You did live over there for what, for the half of a year or for longer? I did a half a year that year and I wasn't sure if I wanted to go back because it didn't go very well. Um, I think I, t- I got, you know what it's like when you first go to the European, part of Europe, should I say for Jens, where you know, you, you're going there to make it as a cyclist. You get so many bits of advice from different people that have either been there and done it or just have read stuff and they wanted to tell you how to how to go about things. And the main piece of advice that I took was, right, you're going to be full time over there because I had a job and I was fitting cycling around a job before. The temptation will be it's much, much more time to ride your bike. But the way you need to look at it is that actually it's much, much more time to rest. And I really took that to heart. <laughs> So I did a lot of resting that year. Um, I, I, I just, when I looked back at it, it was so obvious. You know, when you're looking at your training diaries and stuff, it was so obvious that I was doing a three-day race here and then I'd have obviously a couple of rest days afterwards and then it would only be two days until a one-day race. And so I'd do one day of training then a, a rest day or easy day before the race and then another two. And so if you had one race where you pulled out, I think, well, I still need to have a, you know, an easier day tomorrow and then an easier day before the next race so I'm fresh enough. And I think I just detrained massively throughout the end of that year to the point where I was just not loving life at all. They didn't offer me a place to go back the next year, but I did, through the Dave Rayner Fund, get a place. Uh, actually, I'm not sure if it was a Dave Rayner Fund that year. I don't think they funded me, but I think they might have found me a team in, in Clermont-Ferrand. So I looked out pretty much over the Puy de Dome. Um, and that year, I had, a, I had a brilliant year, just, just all round. I was in this terrible, terribly converted railway station. So my room backed onto the railway, which was still in use. There was nothing really converted about it. It was the most basic accommodation you could ever imagine. There was no washing machine, so we had to hand wash it all. I had like a broom that I tied some string to that when I opened the shutters would drop down so that I could... I could hang my clothes up after I'd washed them in the sink to dry them out the back of the of the window. But I was with a, a guy from Kazakhstan, a South African, another Brit, and we just had the best year ever. We just got along really well. We all clicked. We were all racing quite well together. And I've always remembered looking back at that and thinking, well, I, I decided then and there that life was about who you were with and not necessarily the place that you're in. You know, it's l- nice to have life's luxuries, especially as you get older. Um, But I just had the best year in in 2002 around Clermont-Ferrand, just picking up French and and learning about racing over there. So, yeah, I look look back on that year with a lot of fondness. That's that's a really good point. You know, spending 
time with people that you want to spend time with makes those uh, adventures a little bit more fun, you know, because, yeah, there's many, many times where you get into a situation that you're not around those sort of people and things just go sideways pretty quick. But another real awesome thing that you've done that you've kind of, you know, cut your own path with uh, on top of the whole GCN um, stuff is Zwift. Like, you know, I, I've been a big supporter of Zwift from the beginning. Like I met Eric Min up at Dave Miller's retirement party in 2014. And through a buddy of mine, we went over and he showed me the platform. And, you know, then I got busy doing what I was doing. And next thing I know, there's, there's a lot of content videos around Zwift and, you were a big part of that. So how did you get in involved with, with Zwift and what is your role there there now? Because I know that you're doing the, the Zwift Academy stuff still, right? Yeah, we do. I mean, I've never really had a direct involvement with um, with Zwift. I've sort of done little bits and pieces from them, but mainly through GCN, which, as you know, works with loads of different partners amongst them Zwift. And I, actually, I've got a story about Jens and Zwift. In a, in a short while. Hey, uh, me too. He told us already. Me too. He, he's told you already. Is he's he? locked yeah, and actually, loaded, got, baby. He's locked got, and loaded. I've got, got, well, I've got, got a question good, my friend. for him as well. Um, but yeah, we're going out to see the Swift Academy in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, so they've now selected the five female finalists and the five uh, male finalists. And obviously the winner of each one will get a contract with Canyon Sram or Alperson de Koenig. So yeah, it's been, a, it's been a great journey. I also spoke to Eric before Zwift even started. I think he might have called me, I think. And I, was, I, I think I've got quite a sceptical outlook on a lot of things because I remember him thinking, look, what about if we do like the Gran Turismo of cycling and we can select riders based on power outputs and do races and this, that and the other, which is obviously exactly what they're doing now. You know, they're selecting athletes based. But at the time I was like, well, Eric, you know, I know what the accuracy of power meters are and how, you know, how are you going to get all these people around the world to make sure that all of their power meters are correctly calibrated and they're not changing the zero offset of their SRM or whatever they might be doing to gain some power and win races and this, that and the other. But obviously 10 years after that, it, it all came to fruition and they've got ways of making sure that people aren't uh, cheating on Zwift, etc. And now we've got the Zwift Academy and it's, it's a very successful thing. But yeah, my, my story about Jens... Um, which he's already told you, but I'll tell the listeners. Uh, it was in the early days of both Zwift and GCM, wasn't it? And, and I think Jens was at Trek HQ in Wisconsin, presumably. And we'd arranged to do this race, and I don't think Jens had been given a huge amount of information on it. But it was basically <laughs> me and Cy Richardson against Jens, and, and I hadn't ridden my bike much. I don't ride my bike much anymore. And I thought, well, the only way we're going to win this is if I you know, attack and pretend like I'm strong and Jens has to go on the front and side drafts behind him. And this is going to perfectly demonstrate the way that Zwift worked, which is going to be great for them. Um, so we did that. And I, I, in the end, side cracked Jens and, and Jens didn't win. Side did. But I don't know if you remember this part, Jens. A few, I must have been a year later, we were doing something for Eurosport, which is a completely separate entity at the time a video about the infrastructure around a finish of the Tour de France and how it all goes on to TV, etc. And I saw Jens and I uh, I said, I'm Dan. I don't know if you remember me. I'm from GCN. Um, and Jens started saying, yes, I remember you. You're the you're the people that beat me in this Zwift race. And he started, you started kicking the bin. And I, to this day, I, I tell the story to other people. I said, I'm not, I can't decide whether Jens was joking about that, whether he was that angry that we'd beaten him in a Zwift race after he wasn't explained 
What was happening too well? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I kept the demons pretty good in check. Uh, so, yeah, I remember that. Uh, I had given no information at all, and I was in uh, in Wisconsin, jet-lagged on somebody else's bike, on somebody else's home trainer in a corner of the track headquarters. Yeah, yeah, do this fun event. And I thought we pretend we race, but you guys were serious with warming up and everything. I didn't know anything. I probably didn't even wear a proper race. Uh, I think I just had a T-shirt on. You um, thought it was a post-tour criterium, didn't you? Yeah, yes, yeah, sort of. I wasn't ready at all. <laughs> and I don't know what made me so mad, but, but, but I, I, I was... <laughs> furious would be the oh, word dear. right after fortunately you there were an ocean between us so you guys were pretty <laughs> safe on the other side <sighs> i don't know what it was I, and i think looking back at it i didn't take it serious i should have attacked on a little hill on that you know the very first uh, um standard lap they had on swift there was a little hill i believe i should have just attacked there but um, um, anyway, and then yeah, uh, later I got a box with for the for our listeners. Uh, <laughs> it's a GCN Trophy, Global Cycling Network, most exciting event of the year. What year was it? Nine. I was still racing, I believe. Or I just must have been twenty fourteen or twenty thirteen. I don't remember. It was, yes. it was in the very early days of. I think it might have been twenty fourteen, but I'm not hundred percent sure. So yeah, I remember we just moved offices and uh, and we were in this big vacant floor of the office um oh, 2015 2015 no. yes um so i think i just uh, i just had retired yeah and um also um going to retirement i made a deal with myself okay there's only two rules no more pain no more suffering and no more riding in the rain and of course i broke both of them already on multiple <laughs> occasions but um yeah that was a good event i remember that uh, we need a rematch <laughs> we need a rematch my friend well, I mean, I was unfit at the time. I'm even less fit now, so oh, uh, it, it might have to be. Cy is still very fit, so maybe him and one of the other presenters. Or maybe just him against you, a rematch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be good. Man, that's a plan. <laughs> but, you know, that that was a, a funny, organic segment, right? And you go on right now, and there are so many segments that you guys do. And they're all kind of funny. You know, you have your team of um, James and Mannion, Oliver, Simon, and it looks like you guys are having a fun time. But content, 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 content is always like the main thing, right? Um, how long does it take to make just one of those kind of content pieces that you do? Because you have so many of them, but I, I'd just be interested to hear how long it takes to make just one of those 10 or 15 minute uh, YouTube videos? Uh, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer because it you know depends whether you include all the people that are editing and the people that are making the thumbnails, the people that are uploading. If I go back to the, the early days of GCN, uh, we'd go on what we would call a sunshine shoot, which was Mallorca or, or south of France or whatever. And the aim normally was to be able to film three or four videos per day. And then obviously they need to get edited and then scheduled and uploaded, etc. So we do all the script writing in advance and then film them. But that was kind of the aim. But like I said, back in the early days, uh, the videos were a lot shorter because people didn't have the patience or the want to watch a long YouTube video. And that ch has changed over the years to the point where now, you know, 20 minute videos, half an hour videos, you know, even one hour long TED talks or whatever it might be, 
people are prepared to sit down and watch that, partly because they can watch it on their smart TV, so it just feels like you're watching television. Um, so things have changed. You know, there, there, there's, there's some videos that take a lot longer. They might take a whole day or they might take a couple of days to film, but not really much longer than that because anything that takes longer than a day normally is on GCN Plus as a documentary. And, you know, we've got all the Legends documentaries, we've got all these different adventure ones, etc. and they'll be filmed over a much longer period of time, a bit like a television documentary, or exactly like a television documentary would have been made. But, yeah, the, so that was kind of our... Um, that was kind of where we managed to sort of do well, was just being pretty quick to write a script, pretty quick to film it, pretty quick to edit it, and pretty quick to get it uploaded to YouTube. But it was quite, it was a very small team to begin with. We were just all buzzing that we were doing quite well at something and put a lot of hard work into it and it, and it all paid off. But it, it was fun the whole way. And I think, you know, if you think when we started at the very beginning of 2013, so we're just coming up to the 10th anniversary now, um, we, we all got into cycling because we loved it, right? And it was great fun and great camaraderie good for you, good socially, you know, all of the amazing things about cycling. And uh, and it was just in such a serious space at the time, cycling. Like, you know, you had Rouleur, which was great, but it was all about this has got to be epic and these black and white shots and it's gritty and it's grimy. Um, and, and there were other brands that were quite similar and we were like, actually, let's just make this fun because that's why everyone gets into it and that's probably how you're going to get more people into cycling if you make it fun, if you make it understandable. Because there was a lot of times where I'd be asked to write a script for a video, how to, and I'd like, no one knows, no one needs to know how to do that. It's all like how to remove and replace your rear wheel. And of course you make it and there's loads of people, millions of people out there that have got no clue when they look at a bike, a bit like when I look at a car engine. I don't know where to start. You know, I might be able to jumpstart it if the battery's gone flat, but Beyond that, I don't really know what I'm looking at. And that's the same for many people when they're looking at a bike. So if you can just put stuff out there that says, you know, this, there's not the barriers to this that there used to be. You can find out how to get into riding. You can find out what might make you more comfortable when you ride. You can find out how to go faster if you want. And, and that's the norm for every aspect of life now because of YouTube and other platforms like it in a way that it wasn't before. You know, you might have to wait for a magazine issue to come out about how to change your bottom bracket or something. 20, 30 years ago when we first got into it. Um, so yeah, we just wanted to always make it fun, entertaining, but most of all informative. The, the information was always primary. And if we could make it fun whilst delivering that information, all the better. Well, we walked into a, um, we were down in Colombia. Uh, we were outside of Medellin. And of course, when you're riding in Medellin, you were running into a lot of pros from, from Colombia. And we're heading back to the little uh, meeting point. And uh, I was riding with George Hincap. He had a flat tire. And we come around this turn. There's a parking lot there. And then he starts to change his tire. And I look up and it says it, it's a bike shop. And I'm like, hey, instead of just, you know, wasting a CO2 cartridge, let's just go in there and, and um, ask him for a pump. And we went up there and it was actually Hincapie was the name of the bike shop. And I looked at George and I said, is this your family? And he goes, no, this is, this is odd. And then we're walking in and um, your, your boy Cy was in there and he was doing a piece on, um, on the Hincapi frame builder in Colombia. And it was just the weirdest, most serendipitous <laughs> like meeting. I'm like, man, these guys are 
everywhere. They're just grinding. I remember it. it was it was just before lockdown, wasn't it? Because he was out there making a couple of other documentaries uh, as well as that one. Um, yeah. So we, yeah, whenever we're yeah. traveling, we always try to do quite a bit. Like we're going here for this, but let's do this and this and this whilst we're in that place. But yeah, I remember I remember getting a message from George saying that he'd bumped into Sai out there as well. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton Magazine, exclusive membership content from values.com, access all the premium content from the whole outside family, including Yoga Journal, Backpacker, Ski, Outside Magazine, and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you'll receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. And now back to our chat with Dan. Hmm. So um, do you ever feel the, the pressure of performing or bringing up new content or you go, oh my God, I have no more ideas. I'm, oh, this is terrible. I need this video clip. I need whatever, 15 clips by tomorrow. Um, do you ever feel that pressure that you feel, oh, well, we covered fixing a bike we covered all the races we covered all the athletes there's nothing else we can cover and do you feel somebody else is on your heels oh this company is doing good we need to stay ahead of them or is life relatively relaxing for you because i mean the latest news is already old news isn't it in these modern mm. and fast moving times first of all um I have to give praise to all the other people that are basically doing all of the videos for the original GCN channel. I, I have, apart from doing the GCN show each week, I don't have a huge involvement in, in the original channel because my focus moved over to the racing side of things, which kind of tells its own story, right? You take the biggest story from the day. That's a good narrative to start with if you're making a video about it. Um, but yeah, obviously we'll, we'll have lots of meetings where we're deciding what the, the new content, I say we, you know, the people that are in charge of it, about what the content's going to be, what the strategy's going to be, and it'll be mapped out for quite a long way in front. Of course, there were points where we thought, you know, we're three years into this now, maybe maybe we're going to run out of, of content ideas. But it's just amazing how many new content, new pieces of content ideas come up just because the sport change, you know, gravel comes along or disc brakes come along. People need to know whether or not they should have them or what the choice is, how to maintain them, how to fit them to your bike in the first place. There's always just new strands of cycling, new news stories coming along. Um, and we also haven't been afraid to redo videos and try and do them better. You know, in the same way that back in our day, you'd wait for magazines to come out. They also did the same tutorials about how to do something every three, four years or whatever it might have been for people that are just getting into the sport. So whilst there's always that archive there that you can go back to with YouTube, Sometimes you think, well, we've got new presenters now. They might have a different perspective on how to do this, that, or the other. We can do a better job of filming it because we've got better equipment now. Um, we've got different ideas about how to go about filming it. So you can always redo certain bits. But no, it's 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 never really um, it's never really been a problem for some reason coming up with with content 
year after year, even though it has been uh, 10 years, I think, at this point, coming up in January. And, and for a long, well, for a long time, the main channel had seven videos per week coming out. Um, now it's only got five or six, I think, but that's also because we've got GCN Racing and GCN Tech and all the international language channels as well. So there's, there's a lot of content that goes out there every week. Well, one of the things that I'd say that um, I'm quite jealous of, of is, you know, you're, you work for the Tour de France and you have a team together. You work alongside the one and only Orla, uh, Adam Blythe, Robbie McEwen, Sean Kelly's in there. And you guys look like you are having the time of your life, um, having fun, doing funny videos, whatnot. Tell us a little bit about how having a good team around you makes makes a difference and how that team, that specific team that is like world famous now, came together in the first place. Uh, well, first, it makes a, it just makes a huge difference. You, everyone listening to this and you both know, we said it before, you know, that, that time I was in a really some bad accommodation, but with some great people it was one of the best years I've ever had. If you can surround yourself by people that you get on with really well, then your job just becomes a hundred times easier because you're not waiting to be stabbed in the back. You're not worried about upsetting somebody's ego, this, that, and the other. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been great this year, you know, with Robbie and, and Adam and Orla and, and Sean's also a guy that's done, so much as you both know in the sport of cycling there's just no ego there with him at all he, he barely talks about what he's done in cycling but sometimes you're like I've, i really want to know about this or about that or about the other and then he'll tell you the stories but he's never about himself unless he's asked and i think if you can put that sort of team together where there aren't any egos and there's not any sort of whispering behind each other's backs that you can just be honest with each other then you almost forget that you're going live for a TV show. You know, I, I don't know how Orla does it actually. She, we can be two seconds to on air, and she's just finishing a conversation or a tweet to go out, and she just puts her phone to one side, and and just starts presenting. Um, but it, I, I think hopefully it's partly because she's got a lot of trust in me, Adam and Robbie. That if we get into any troubles, you know, we can have on live television where timings change or something comes in or there's some kind of technical problem or whatever it might be that we're going to be able to fill it and she's more than capable of filling in as well. So no, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure this year, just on the mic, on screen. And yeah, it's nice that, that people have enjoyed it as well. I'm, I'm sure not everyone's enjoyed it, but it seems like a, we're going in the right direction with it anyway. So now talking about um, working for, for, you know, GCN Eurosport, um, commenting on races. Um, I'm your colleague on Eurosport yeah. Germany. And I think once uh, with modern technology, you transformed me into that cube in London, talking with, I believe, Orla and Adam were there. Yeah. Um, where do you think is the future of this? Staying at home at the head office because you got all the highest uh, tech, the most high tech possible equipment there? Or going there and having somebody in the car, like back in the old days, um, following the race? Um, because I believe being there alive, the advantage of that is going smaller and smaller because teams just don't talk to you anymore without you asking weeks and weeks ahead. You got three questions. You got exactly got to ask the question like you put it in your in your offer weeks ago. So being there alive, I think it is almost overrated. But then again, you miss the life feeling. What's your point on on that? You're you're completely right. The, the 
there's a, there's a trade-off there. Um, I think we'd all like to be on site and moving around with the race because obviously you get such a buzz from it. But in doing that, it costs an awful lot of money. So then you have to weigh up how much more are you getting out of it with all of this cost? Because you do get a little bit more, but is it enough to warrant the extra expense? Because you're, as you both know, always one step ahead of the race because you finish your commentary when the riders cross the line, you might do a post-race show. And then once you've finished everything, you're then driving to the finish of the following day stage. So you're always one step ahead of the, the biggest part of the circus. So how much extra insight and knowledge do you attain? So what you do get is you're able to ride or drive the course in the morning, which often gives you way more information than you would get if you're just looking at a profile or VeloViewer or Google Street View or whatever it might be. So there's definitely a bits of advantage to being on the race. Is it worth all the extra expense? You know, that's something for the higher bosses to decide every year. But, um, you know, it's become everything so much more accessible from home anyway. I think it's nice to be, you know, every business has come to this point where they're now trying to decide what do we do? Everyone's got used to working from home. Some businesses are fine with that. You know, Airbnb have left everybody at home, but that makes sense for their business because of what they do. Other companies have tried to get people back in and they're quite reluctant to do it. And I think for us three at the age that we are now, it's quite nice being at home. But if we were 20 and we were trying to make our way in the world and you were at home all the time, you just don't have, you don't learn enough, right? Through osmosis of all of the people that you're working with, the older people that have got all this experience to pass on to you. It'd be like trying to make it as a pro cyclist without being passed any of the information from the older teammates, the managers, etc., It makes it very, very hard indeed. So I think, you know, commentary is nicer when you're both in the same booth and you can look at each other and it sounds slicker because you interrupt each other less. But on the other side of the coin, now that Eurosport and Discovery and GCN has commentary on every single race of the year and they've got more races than ever, just to let viewers know, just it was only three or four years ago, if it wasn't on linear TV, so the traditional television, and it was only on digital, they wouldn't put commentators on it. Whereas now, I don't know how many race days we had this year. I think it was about 650 race days of road race. I know that doesn't make any sense, but obviously there were, there were days where more than one race happened at the same time. And so from that point of view, if you can have people remotely in different places, you know, Rob Hatch is often in Mallorca and there's somebody else. And you can do FaceTime so that you can see if you're about to, if, you, if somebody wants to interject, they just wave and say, I've seen something. Um, so it, it, it can work. I don't think it's ever as good as being in person. And I think being on site is better than being back in a studio and, and remote commentary places. But it's just a trade-off between, between budget and, and what you get out of it, I think. And also to add to that, uh, the Tour de France, I mean, you you must remember, you do cover 4,000 kilometers in the car and yeah, you drive sometimes at, at midnight until midnight because you finish the race, do the post-race show, send it all to uh, your uh, your uh, iCloud or whatever you use and then you drive. Then you got to look for food and in France, you must know everything closes at 9 or 10. Yeah. So <laughs> you got to think ahead, where do I find petrol where do i park the car so i wouldn't be blocked in tomorrow morning by the tour de france barriers on the side of the road so it is quite an adventure and i mean now that you know you have done the tour bobby have done the tour and and we did the commentating i was less tired than 
did Tour de France as a bike rider, but I was, <laughs> yes. I was, I was pretty much naked as well. I was pretty yeah. much naked, all this driving at night, stupid heavy food. So yes, you're right. At our age, I'm quite happy to do it, you know, in you, the air-conditioned studio, and um, it, it is uh, more convenient, yes. You prefer to be based in the same place? You, you wouldn't want to be back out on the road again? Well, I change my mind 10 times a day, to be honest, because like you say, you do get a little bit more out of it. It does feel more like, hey, I'm there and it's original and it's live. Uh, so, yeah, you do miss a bit of quality, but uh, yeah, it, it, it is tiring and it's quite an adventure, you know, to yeah. cover a, a stage race for three weeks. Yeah, you want to do like a Paris-Nice or a Torino, just just seven or eight days away, traveling around with the circus and then home. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, we're we're talking about the real sharp end, tippity tip part of the spear here. You know, about elite cycling. But um, you mentioned experience. You know, and we're talking, and we understand everything we're talking about right now because of experience. But luckily, I get to do a lot of cycling events these days, and just recently finished my sixth uh, Hincapie Graham Fondo here in, in Greenville, South Carolina. And when you're doing these events, you're reminded that everyone has questions. Mm. Not everyone has experience. Um, not everyone is knows every trick of, you know, how to kit up and, you know, how to clip in and out of their, their, their pedals, you know, something as easy as that. But it's really that organic thing that when, when I'm around these people, um, I'm always trying to give them those little tidbits of, of information and pass along, um, my experience. So I'd like to ask each of you this question. Um, can you guys remember that first question that you didn't feel comfortable asking um, asking anybody about at one of your first races? Because, man, I saw so many things this week that just made me smile. Like, you know, the chain ring mark on the side of the leg. You know, like, people are like, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. But I'm like, hey, that's just part of it. But do you remember, Dan, like, your first kind of question or uh, that, that you just didn't know the answer to and you're almost scared to ask anybody? <sighs> Nothing springs to mind. I, I've always been such a questioner. Like I want, I just wanted information uh, right from day dot. As soon as I wanted to start getting faster on a bike, I just wanted to devour information. And so I was asking questions. I found my first coach by looking through the back of the British Cycling Handbook because they used to list all the coaches. And I found one nearby. And I mean, he was brilliant, but he must have been thinking like, I need to get off the phone now, but I had question after question after question. And so, you know, I devoured all of the magazine training articles, any books that I could find, any information possible, really. I'm sure, I, I mean, I must have asked some really silly questions over the years, but I, not one springs to mind straight away. How about you, Yanzi? Do you have anything? Um, now that I had, um, since Dan was answering first, I had uh, one more minute to think about. I believe... Um, it was, well, knowing myself, um, I was just itching to go into a tech. But early in my career, 98, 99, we still had this part where we would do 20 or 30 miles just riding along, right? Yeah. 
And I had probably a triple espresso in the in the camping car before the start. So I was just itching to go. <laughs> and I look at Chris Bobman. Can I go now? Can I go? And he said, no, nobody else attacks. And Chipo is out there in the front. He wouldn't like if you attack or whatever. You have museum or whoever, you know. Yeah, so no, no, he just wait. I'm like, you know, like five miles down the road. Hey, can I go now? Can I go now? <laughs> so I believe that was probably where Chris went. Jesus, this kid has no clue about how this works. But I was just willing to go because I only had a shitty one-year contract. I needed to make <laughs> results to get another contract and finally earn a little bit of money so I can actually feed the family with that. Well, another thing, these days, cycling is like a fashion show, right? Like everybody has a bike that costs just as much as their car, um, all the gear. So what are some like new like suggestions or fashion tips from you, Dan, that that you think are the do's and don'ts of, of cycling these oh, days Jesus. in terms of, fashion. of the kit? I need to get Adam Blythe on the phone for fashion. I'm not your man for that. Um, I, I don't, I really don't ride my bike very much anymore. And so I haven't really got any tips when it comes to equipment or clothing. But when you were talking to me a minute ago about your, your experiences at, at the Grand Fondos, etc., it reminded me of a few years ago when I did a some sort of, it was like a 100-mile sportive, and I hadn't done any training really before it. Um, well, I'd done a couple of rides in the lead up to it because I started to get scared that I was going to suffer so much on this 100 miles that I'd better do something. Thankfully, it was reasonably flat. But I remember starting and thinking, well, if I'm going to get through this, I'm going to have to really pace it. Like, I'm, otherwise, I'm going to be cramping towards the end and run out of energy. But you know what it's like. You go along at 25Ks an hour and immediately you're bored. So I managed it for about half an hour. And I was thinking, this is so boring, like going at this speed. And a group of about three or four riders came past me doing about 34, 35. And I thought, well, it's flat. You know, the power that I'm going to be doing on their wheel is probably pretty similar to doing 25 on my own. So then I got on, and then and then again, you know what it's like. It's like, well, I I can't really let this wheel go. I can't. And in my head, I was thinking, I know I should let this wheel go because now it's starting to hurt a bit more on the climbs and stuff. But I just cannot do it. But thankfully, the group got bigger and bigger and bigger. We must have had about thirty people, and I was always hovering towards the back of it. And I remember going over this one rise, and a guy two in front of me let the wheel go. And I'm thinking, well, it's not that hard. And I'm looking round, thinking, well, he'll close the wheel over the top or we'll do a little sprint. And I looked around again and the gap's got a bit bigger. And I think, he's surely going to close that gap. And I looked again, it's got even bigger. And I was thinking, I'm going to have to sprint round this myself. But in that moment, I realised there's 10,000 people doing this sportive. This person has no reason to, to just stick to this wheel at all costs because it's 150 500 other groups that will come along afterwards that he can work with or be on the slipstream of. And it made me think at the time, like how much of our mentality was, I cannot let that wheel go. I have to stay within a few centimeters of that at all costs. Otherwise, I'm going to be dropped and I might be completely out of this race. You know, if it's the start of a Tour de France stage and it's absolutely flat out, if I don't stick to that wheel, I'm probably going home tonight. And it's things like that when, when you ride with other people you start to understand about all these little things that you've learned, some of which are really helpful, others of which you might as well, you don't need to remember anymore. You know, sheltering to one side of a rider in front when the wind's coming from the right is actually really useful for somebody that's new to the sport to learn because they'll save so much energy. But there's other bits that we did, which is like, I don't need to do that. Another thing I've done recently, it's only in the last year 
that I've realized that our old thing of never stand when you can sit, never sit when you can lie down might not actually be the best thing for me anymore. I've lit. I, I, I just hadn't thought about it since I finished racing. As I started listening to other podcasts, like stand up for your meetings at work. Like if you're on a Zoom call at home, I should be pretty stood up now. And I suddenly thinking, well, of course, you know, it's good to stand. Otherwise, my bones density is going to get less and less and less. But there's always these little things that you don't realise are rattling around in your head that have come from many years as being a pro cyclist and wanting to be the best in terms of performance. That now I sort of think, well, actually, that might be something I don't need to do anymore. But maybe I should do that for health reasons and to have a longevity of life. Yeah, it's been an interesting journey since. I was going to find. I was going to ask you both actually how you found how you found the transition from being a pro to. I keep moving my phone. Sorry, editor's not be very happy with me. How you found the transition from being full time pro to to leaving the sport behind and not pinning a number on again? Because I think it's. I look at so many different riders and I that are still raised and I think I hope you're prepared for what comes afterwards because you can never complain about what you did because it was what so many people wanted and wished to do but actually it's hard when you finish because all of these things that you've got in place in your mind have all gone you know the the, the fact that your life's mapped out in front of you tomorrow's training next week's training the first training camp the race calendar for the start of the year you know where you're going and you know everything about what you're doing and when you finish even if you might have an idea of where you want to go next, it's all new and you're just starting a whole new career, even if it's in the same sport. And you can see why some people do struggle on the other side of it. Um, I actually bloody effing suffered with that uh, transition. It, it is hard. There is this famous big black hole you fall into. What helped me was having good, stable family relation, sub, like a support system. Um, I missed the fitness or I still miss the superior fitness waking up in the morning going hey I'm unbeatable I'm bloody Jens folk nothing can go wrong today I miss the camaraderie with the boys and I'm not gonna lie I do miss a hundred thousand people on the Champs-Élysées going Jensi Fuzzy go Fuzzy Ale Ale I do miss that I do miss people on a sort of road that to have California yeah Jensi for president signs holding up signs Jensi for president yes I'm not gonna lie I miss that now, when you live at home, you hardly get a thank you from the family. You just get, uh, yeah, faster, more, quicker, do more, more money, more houses, more cars, cut the lawn, do this. So, yeah, life, uh, <laughs> it, it was a change. Uh, it was a change, and it took me a while to get used. Fortunately, I had, like, really good friends. They sometimes also had to talk open or, like, some, not hard, but, like, open words, Jens. No, this is stupid. Don't do this. Do this instead. So, I was lucky I had a good network of family and friends they helped me through that but uh, yes it was challenging i have to admit for half a year maybe a year um, now i'm good but um for half a year it was challenging and as you say everything that your life is mapped out in front of you and all that is gone right like cut and gone and you realize ah if I actually want to travel to Tour of California now as a commentator, I need to apply for a visa. How is that going to work? <laughs> Somebody else did it always for you, right? Like a good example is I had an event in Australia and same thing with the visa. And they take that visa stuff serious over there in Australia. I got the visa in the taxi to the airport. Like 
an hour before my flight, I went, I'm going to go to the airport and I'm going to jump in the plane from Berlin to Frankfurt. Hopefully, the visa arrives in this two or three hour times. I'm going to be boarding my flight to Australia in Frankfurt. And I got it when I left my house in a taxi. So I said, oh man, you got you to gotta better spice up your game here because this is, this is not good. So yes, it, it was challenging. Absolutely. And like you said, Dan, I understand that people don't like it or people struggle a lot more with the transition. Yeah. I'll try not to be as verbose as you are, Yenzi, but um, I think through my career, I had so many stops and near finishes that I was almost a little acclimated to that that point because in 1996, I had a heart condition where I thought, okay, my career is over. In 2003, I had no contract until Bjarne Reese gave me a very, very small one at CSC, which prolonged, prolonged my career. So for me, uh, it was just the realization that I got everything out. I left everything out on the road, that I accomplished everything that I felt that I could accomplish. Um, compared to some people that have to uh, stop their careers because of injury, because of sickness, because of you know their teams folding. Um, and then just to have something to, to go into, because uh, I think Jens and I talked about this before, is you know that that unknown like you said you have a schedule you have a rhythm and you're you, you mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast you you know you still kind of kept that same rhythm mm. from from your cycling days so for me it was definitely the ego is checked at the door that day that I retired I get passed by old ladies on e-bikes on bike paths and I'm totally fine with that there's some guys uh, I won't mention, but he's my neighbor here in Greenville, South Carolina, that will absolutely chase that person down and, <laughs> and make sure that they suffer. So um, it's 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 an interesting thing. And this year we had so many massive names retire at the same time. You know, Richie Port, Philippe Gilbert, Nibali, uh, Valverde, the list goes on and on and on. So yeah, it'll be interesting. Maybe we can get some of those guys on the podcast to see how that transition is going. But listen... You know that's life. You gotta you gotta deal with it. Hopefully, you have something to go into. Hopefully, you have that strong family network, and um, you know, time to spend time with the kids and the and the dogs in the yeah. in the backyard. I think it's also worth noting that it's it's almost as difficult for the wife in our cases or the husband in in female athletes' cases because. I'm sure it's probably the same for both of you, but certainly for me, Lorraine met me when I was already a cyclist. And so all she'd ever known of me was that I would go away for certain periods of the year and then I'd be home. And then obviously it came a point where for a short period, I was just at home all of the time, kind of wondering what I was going to do next. And I think my character probably changed and I was maybe slightly struggling with the adaptation into, into the real world. And I think the other thing I always look at is, you know, sometimes when I'm researching... Uh, a video on racing for whatever reason and you'll find some somebody that's won a stage of the Tour de France some year into a place where they're finishing this year and you say, I've never heard of this person like, I, my job is within cycling I spent my whole life looking at cycling and yet there's a guy here that's won a stage of the Tour de France and I've never heard of him in my life and I think you know when I start looking at things unless you're like the Eddie Merckx or one of the really top stars, you know, Chris Freeman would be fine because he's won so many tours de France. The really, really, really big names are able to continue making money within the sport for many years to come because they're such a big name. You only have to go one slight level down 
to somebody that might have had a Grand Tour leaders jersey in two of the Grand Tours or have won a stage in all three of the Grand Tours. Unless they're still within cycling, maybe on television or whatever it might be, keeping their name in those lights, people will forget them very quickly. And so I think, you know, I've been fortunate from that point of view that, you know, I fell into a job that ended up occupying my mind, which I think is the main thing. You need to find something that's going to occupy your mind in a similar way and keep you driven and motivated in goal setting. Um, but I can see how some people would get lost afterwards when they're just that one level below. Also because of the wages at that level. I think you're always as a cyclist thinking, well, I'm doing all right here, but I'm not doing as well as that guy over there. He's on three, four, five million a year. You know, I'm not doing that well. And when you get to the real world afterwards, you're like, actually, I was doing really well there. It's quite hard to make that amount of money when you come out of being a professional sports person. And you know, it's right that you get paid decent money as a, as a sports person because the longevity of that career is is finite. You know, It's going to end sooner rather than later. But it's just a, just lots of different adjustments there for both you and, and your family and partner, I think. I, I always find it interesting seeing what people do when they finish cycling in particular. Well, you know, um, just to um, um, basically um, 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 confirm what you just said, my wife and me, We are sitting in, in the car driving to town, you know, kids are in school, so we were driving to town for breakfast. You know, just her and me, the kids were all in school, so they were all safe and under supervision. So our little getaway times is breakfast in town. And we stop at the red lights and we look at each other and I swear almost simultaneously say, listen, if your career stops next year, I don't think you should stop traveling completely i want you to travel a lot to travel a lot less yeah but being home 365 days i don't know that would be maybe too much and we both said the same thing more or less at the same time so it was good that i still had a job and and we slowly get adapted you know because once you're home you're not training so you'll be home in the morning you go hey honey why don't you put the towels on the left and he goes no honey the towels have been on the right for the last 20 years you just have never <laughs> seen it because you were always gone the towels will stay on the right side of the of the closet or off the shelf you go yeah but you would look better on the left you know like silly things like that so yes it was good that we still had a bit of traveling going on at the beginning of my retirement Well, Dan, uh, it's been great. I think we could just sit here and, and, and talk all day. Um, but, you know, in, in this podcast world, we need to be, you know, strict with, with times and, and durations. Like you said, you know, those, those small, quicker hits um, work a little bit longer. So no one wants to listen to, to us for three hours. But anyway, thank you so much for, for coming on. All the best with everything, uh, all your all your exploits, all your little adventures, all your little projects, because um, it's really, really great listening to you and, and, and knowing you a little bit better now and, and getting, just getting that little personal touch from, um, from a good guy in the sport of cycling. Well, thanks very much, guys. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Dan Lloyd for being our guest. Thank you for listening and please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Bella News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. <laughs>